and welcome to another episode of COM 226, The Social Impact of Mass Media, and I'm your instructor, Stephen Warren. In this lecture, I'm going to talk about framing theory and how just a small change in how a story is presented can influence whoever's reading it or consuming that news. So the basic premise of framing theory is just that. It's really basic. So framing effects occur when a small change in how a story is presented or framed can change the opinion on that story. So we talked about attribute agenda setting in the previous lecture, or second level agenda setting, which is where the news presents issues by focusing on certain aspects of that story or topic attributes. That's basically what framing is. So a good example of framing at work is equivalency effects or equivalency frames, when equal meaning is applied differently to alter viewpoints. So an example of this would be the glass is half full or the glass is half empty. Essentially, it means the same thing. The glass is filled exactly the same amount. It's just a difference in how it's framed, positively or negatively. Or you know how yogurt will sometimes say 80% fat-free. Well, that's better than saying contains 20% fat, right? It's the same thing, but one makes you feel much better about eating it. So issues in the news can be looked at from a variety of perspectives and given a variety of implied meanings or values or considerations. And people can develop a particular conceptualization or opinion about an issue in part based on those various perspectives. And this is backed up by simple research. I mean, we can see in slide four that 42% of Americans say we spend too much on welfare, yet only 7% say we spend too much on assistance for the poor. It's the same thing, it's just a matter of how it's worded. Can you think of any others like this? An example that comes to mind is climate change or global warming. On the slide, there's a little cartoon that on one side says, thanks to our aggressive stance on climate change, this government has reduced carbon emissions by almost 5%. You know, really, rah, rah, says boom, bah, happy, go lucky. Versus the other side of that is carbon emissions reduced by just 4.6% in the last five years. One of those will make people much more excited about something, and one will make them much more depressed about something. Now, in terms of why this theory matters in the media effects world, it's less to do with the potential for violence or aggression, like some of the other theories that we've talked about. Um, for this one, as well as stuff like agenda setting and most of the theories that we did talk about in the second part of the semester, it's more about opinion and attitude change or influence and persuasion. So if we think about the idea in terms of how in journalism and news, media mediates the communication between political elites and citizens that if one little change in wording can actually influence how people think about something, what does that mean for, well, framing theory, but also how, what does that mean for mass media and democracy in general? So just think about those things moving forward. Now I have a little activity to see how well you can actually identify frames or framing, but before we get into that, here's how researchers try to identify framing. So primarily there's two ways researchers study framing. 
The first is called frame building. In this case, people are interested in looking at how journalists build frames, or what type of language they're using in their stories, so the news side of the equation. This is what most of the studies actually look at, so to examine this, researchers use a technique that doesn't actually involve people at all. So it's not an experiment or interview or survey. They do a content analysis. And for framing, the content analyses usually involve these steps. So first is you identify the issue or topic to be reported on. You need something to frame. So what important topic in the news do you want to cover? Second, you isolate a specific attitude about that topic since frames may differ based on the opinion or attitude. So researchers decide if they're going to look at the overall attitudes towards an issue or causal attributes of an issue. In other words, what's the general consensus about the issue or topic that's picked? Then third, once you've selected a specific attitude about that issue, you come up with an initial set of frames about that issue that are related to that specific attitude. And these are often from either prior research um, and that are used to describe the issue or topic, or you can actually ask people through interviews or surveys and get sort of the public opinion about what's used. Then fourth, you select the type of mass media source that you want to analyze. So in this case, you select the population for content analysis. And population isn't people. In this case, it's something like newspapers or cable news shows, or all the tweets from a news source's Twitter profile. That's your population to analyze. And then last, you analyze. You look to see if the frames you were looking for were actually there or not. And so that's it. You figure out what issue you want to talk about. You figure out a specific attitude about that topic. You come up with ways that people frame that topic. Then you decide do you want to look at newspapers for that topic? Do you want to look at Fox News for that topic? Whatever it is. And then you actually analyze it to see if those frames are there or not. Now, let's see how well you can actually identify frames and hopefully make more sense of this. So we're going to watch two news clips about the same topic, Jesse Smollett. And what I want you to think about is what happened, which attributes or features of the event are emphasized, and which values or considerations are addressed. So I'll play the first one now. Uh, Ron, this is of course uh, alleged uh, still, but that was a pretty detailed uh, list of events from the attorney's office as to exactly what happened, exactly how they found it out. Well, if these allegations are true, um, it is obviously extraordinary police work to pin this all together. It sounds like there was indeed some planning, allegedly, uh, to stage this this whole hoax. Now, we should just point out as a point of uh, uh, geographical reference, where uh, Jussie Smollett lives just off the Chicago River in a neighborhood called Streeterville, which incidentally is just across the street from the NBC News Bureau. And the, the gentleman, apparently, according to this uh, complaint you just heard the uh, assistant uh, state's attorney read, were dropped off by a cab just a few blocks away and then walked the rest of the way when they were supposed to meet him around 2 o'clock on, on the, in the early morning hours of January 29th. Jesse Smollett was not there. He apparently had gotten home from this trip 
from back east. He said he walked to a Walgreens first. He thought it was a 24-hour Walgreens. He wanted to get something to eat. Seeing that that Walgreens was closed, he then went to the uh, Subway sandwich shop, which is about a block and a half away, and then made his way back to his area where his apartment building is. Now, what's interesting, if this is, again, these allegations, these are just allegations, but if he wanted this uh, attack, this alleged attack to be captured on camera, he was too far south of the camera that is at that corner of New Street and Lower Water Street, right across the street from his building. That camera, and you may have remembered those images that police released of those two shadowy figures that turned out to be these brothers um, of, who have um, Nigerian, who from uh, America, born here in America, but with Nigerian descent. That was, in fact, them. Both of them affiliated with this show, Empire. They were on the east side of the street. Uh, Jussie's building is on the west side of the street, and this alleged attack took place south of that intersection near the stairway up to the next level. There's a street level uh, above it uh, where the cars and traffic uh, go by. And so that's where he says the, uh, this attack took place. But uh, there, there are no cameras shooting that particular location. So I don't know if that was part of the strategy, if that was, uh, if this in fact turns out to be true, that this was planned by this actor. Uh, but the attack itself was not seen on camera. And, 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 and some of the things that I, sh I think we should also point out, we can now point out that he's been charged, is the two police officers who responded to the initial call uh, found it somewhat unusual, given the jobs that they have, for, for an alleged victim to still be wearing a chemically stained shirt that uh, he says the, the perpetrators threw on him along with that, with that rope. So that raised eyebrows from the very beginning. And then, of course, over the course of these 23 days, more and more red flags uh, began to pop up about this narrative so right off the bat the things that i noticed specifically are how much they say alleged and allegedly you know not wanting to indict this person on the news the other thing i noticed with this one is just the level of detail that goes into how smollett just went about that day i mean even talking about you know subway being closed and where the specific security cameras were very specific details about all of that. So now, think about that and think about if those details or other details or other types of evaluations or considerations are talked about in this second clip. The producers of Empire have announced Jesse Smollett's character will not appear in the season's final two episodes. This is the actor denies allegations he staged a hate crime to boost his career and salary, we're told by the police superintendent there. The executive producers released this statement saying, quote, we are placing our trust in the legal system as the process plays out. We are also aware of the effects of this process on the cast and crew members who work on our show. And to avoid further disruption on set, we have decided to remove the role of Jamal from the final two episodes of the season, end quote. I want to bring in now Libby Locke, a defamation attorney. Libby, so good to get your expertise on this. Uh, first of all, with the charges against Smollett, and you talk about distraction on set, it's even more than that. Uh, he's technically a suspect and also maybe a witness in a case. Yeah, absolutely, Harris. This is a case where he has been charged with disorderly conduct, filing a false police report, through uh, through Illinois prosecutors, um, you saw the police commissioner there and the district attorney um, talking about the the real disruption that happened in the city of Chicago and and the cost to the taxpayers. 
He could face, you know, one to three years in prison for this kind of uh, false report if he, in fact, made that false report. Uh, and, uh, and also pay restitution to the city of Chicago for all the time and expense that those, uh, that those officials uh, had, to, had to go through to, uh, to, to, bring, to, to bring these charges if he's ultimately found guilty. You know, uh, Libby, the New York Post, uh, also owned by the company that owns us, uh, did some reporting, and others have today, too, that Jesse Smollett had been um, arrested for DUI and lied to police about his identity at that time. How does a pass like that play into a case like what he's facing now? Well, that's a really good question, Harris. There are rules of evidence that um, some prior convictions um, may be admissible, others not admissible in a criminal trial. It depends on whether the prior criminal conviction goes to his truthfulness uh, mm -hmm. and whether he, whether he is, has conduct that is uh, truthful or not in that kind of character. Um, here, it'll be an interesting question as to whether that prior conviction comes in. Um, but, uh, you know, the other thing that is uh, that people have been talking about, he may very well face criminal charges here. The federal code makes it a crime to use the mail, um, the U.S. mail, uh, to attempt to defraud somebody. And that's going to be a very interesting to see if federal authorities attempt to bring those charges. And those carry with it uh, much more significant penalties, up to 20 years in jail. Oh, wow. um, uh, and so those are much ser more serious charges and longer uh, prison terms if those charges are brought. So, Libby, am I wrong about this? Or it seems like in the last 24 hours or so, because I've been talking with attorneys on the show as well, that the charges or the possibilities are widening. Yeah, exactly. I mean, look, the, the federal uh, mail charges, it's an interesting theory because usually you see these mail charges in bribery cases where um, uh, an individual sends a letter to someone saying, I'm going to disclose certain facts about you if you don't pay me money. And the federal government says you can't use the mail to tr attempt to defraud somebody. Here, the allegations are a bit different. Mr. Som uh, 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 Jesse was uh, alleged to have sent a letter to himself. And so there are a right. lot of questions that still need answering. Did he present that letter to the to his bosses at Fox? Did he attempt to use that letter to to get more money uh, in his salary negotiations with Fox for his position wow. on it, his, his role in Empire? It, we it, don't know the answers to those questions yet. It, but, it's uh, a lot. It's, it's why I framed it in kind of a, you know, a tongue-in-cheek way, but also you become a witness when you're mailing stuff to yourself. Uh, Libby Locke, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Now, as I'm sure you can hear in this second clip, they're much more accusatory in tone, even bringing up previous arrests, um, whether or not they're actually related to this. And they talk about how much, you know, his case costs for the taxpayers, that sort of thing. And so much more of a negative representation of this story versus the first one is a bit more positive. Now, if I asked you to identify the news source of these, and all I told you is one is Fox News and one is MSNBC, I think you could probably figure out which is which just based solely on the way that they talked about these stories. And just to be clear, the one that's talking in the allegedly, and talking about the details of the situation, that's the MSNBC one. So, in those two examples, 
We were able to identify what the different frames were, and which news organization reported on those stories the way they did, and we can probably make a guess as to why. But how do you tell if people are actually affected by these different frames? Do you talk to your relatives at Thanksgiving? I mean, maybe you do if you wish to not have a good time at Thanksgiving. So if frame building is one of the ways to research framing, frame setting is the other way that researchers study framing, and it's a bit tougher to study. Like, it just seems like it's there, and you need to study people. And beyond studying people, you need to figure out how to measure the influence from those frames on the audience, which can be a wide range. But there are a few standard methods to try to do it. So the first is, you have two groups, and they're given opposite frames. And you try to see if there's a difference in opinion between those two groups after receiving those opposite frames. So this is pretty obvious. I mean, think of a sports team. Usually, rivals will have very different sources of sports media. You know, newspapers, or radio, or local beat reporters. And probably very different opinions on a game between the two. If my Celtics win, they won because they played well. If they lose, though, it wasn't the other team playing well, it was my Celtics playing poorly. And a lot of times, news articles from different sources, say it's Boston or wherever the other team is from, will differ in frames similarly. And so you can see if those frames actually affect people by the way that their readers or audience actually talks about or has attitudes of a topic. A second way to look at if framing things a certain way can affect people is you look at how close a person's quote-unquote true beliefs are versus opinions based on a specific frame. Now, here, if there's less correlation between those two things, meaning their true beliefs and the way they talk about something based on a frame, then there's a greater effect from that frame. And so the way to do this isn't really that you're tricking someone, but you're kind of throwing them a curveball. And so what you do is you ask a person about their beliefs, and then you ask other questions that are worded differently that also measure those beliefs. And those ones are supposed to measure their true beliefs. Think of the example from the beginning of class with welfare and assistance for the poor. A lot more people disliked the idea of welfare than they did assistance for the poor. So welfare is the frame there. And assistance for the poor supposedly measures someone's true beliefs. But because they're worded differently, people won't notice that they are. And so the bigger discrepancy between what they say they believe and what the other questions that measure what they actually believe, the bigger difference between those two, the larger the effect from news potentially. And then a third way to measure this frame setting is to have a control group. And so you have a control group that just gets the basic or sort of neutral or objective facts about an issue or topic, and then you compare that to a group that is getting frames and see how differing their opinions are. And so those are the ways to study framing and frame setting, but how can those actual effects become stronger? Well, like a lot of things, the most obvious is personal dispositions or predispositions. You know, someone's values or their prior opinions about something. This will tend to lessen framing effects the stronger your feelings currently are. Number two, 
people's access to other information, whether that be opinions or conversations or other media outlets about the same topic or issue. You know, think about the two stories we just listened to and how you reacted based on the info you already had about it. Did you agree with one but disagree with the other? That's probably your individual access to other information that you know about the topic that influences how much you're affected by one or the other story. Third, how knowledgeable you are of an issue. And interestingly, knowledge has actually been found to either increase or decrease effects. So you might know a lot, so your thoughts are reinforced. Or you're exposed to the other side or the other opinion, which makes you dig your feet in more. And last, the applicability or relevancy of a frame can actually affect you. So, for instance, I have asthma, so I might be more likely to believe a story about a new treatment. And so those are the main ways that framing effects might differ, become stronger or weaker, based on people, individuals. In terms of the content side, what makes a strong frame should not be confused with an intellectually or morally superior argument, okay? They can be built around exaggerations or outright lies playing on fears or prejudices of the public. Does that sound familiar? How about the term illegal alien versus migrant worker? So then, if a good argument doesn't make for a strong frame, what does? Instead, strong frames often rely on symbols, endorsements, or links to partisanship and ideology, and may be effective in shaping opinions through heuristics rather than direct information about the substance of a policy. So what's a heuristic? Something that's easy to remember. Something like, make America great again. And so generally from the content side of things, framing effects depend on a mix of three factors strength and repetition of the frame, the competitive environment, in other words, what other frames are people being exposed to, and individual motivations, whether a person is seeking info or not. If a person's not looking for new information, there's going to be less of an effect. And so now that you've learned about framing, it sometimes gets confusing when you hear about priming and agenda setting and framing, because they're all kind of related. And the book actually argues that framing and priming, by communications definition, are somewhat interchangeable. To that, I completely disagree. Framing is more about how something is presented. Priming is more a reaction to how something is presented. And media can set the agenda by talking about specific stories in certain ways, or framing them in different ways. And so, media can set the agenda by using frames that prime the audience to think about certain things in certain ways. And so, there you have it. Overall, you can see that this type of theory could be seen in a positive or a negative light. I mean, framing things in ways to make them sound more appealing can help with certain groups or enhance social movements. They could even be neutral, though. The other reading from class seems to show that where newspaper slant or framing, seems to be more influenced by the people in that area, not the other way around. But obviously, framing can also be negative, where political elites are able to manipulate the public um, for their own interests. 
And so the fact that framing itself can be a positive or negative thing, or framed positively or negatively, going forward, the book argues that that just means that we need an active public debate to inform people about the issues. But having opinions is only half the problem in a democracy. The other half is that people must balance their strong opinions with a capacity to be flexible and open-minded. So my hope is that by teaching you about framing, and really every other theory in this class, maybe it will allow you to understand media just a little bit better and become a little more flexible and open-minded. At least, that's how I choose to frame the word teaching. Thanks. Oh.